Welcome to Releasing Your Inner Dragon, where story creators talk story creation. Drake is an award-winning fantasy novelist and creative writing teacher. You can find his epic fantasy series, The Genesis Oblivion, on Kindle Vela. Marie runs a fantasy world-building channel called Just In Time Worlds, and her first book, The Hidden Blade, is available on Kindle Unlimited. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Releasing Your Inner Dragon. Today, we're going to do a continuation of the writer's journey. Last time, we discussed the everyman writer. Today, we would like to discuss the writer's trials of troubles, how to overcome them, and what they are that you might face on your journey to becoming a writer. This is an, a beautiful topic because, first of all, every writer goes through it. Every writer. But second of all, I don't think it ever ends. I mean, 30 years into this, I still struggle with these exact same demons. You know, I always describe it as I have an eight-year-old girl that lives inside of me and she freaking hates me. You know, that's my demon. I don't know why she manifests an eight-year-old girl who hates me, but that's literally, and she's just constant because they're the meanest. I don't think there's any person on earth that's meaner than an eight-year-old girl. Um, not that they can't be sweet too. I'm talking about the really, the nasty ones. And maybe when I was eight, I was scarred by some little hero. I don't know. And it's just followed me. Like, this is a fantastic topic to really kind of stink your teeth into. Because as I always say, if you know what's coming, if you know the obstacles that you're going to be facing, it is so much easier to get over them as opposed to them hitting you in the face blind. I guess one of the first topics we must talk about is self-doubt. And with it comes the lack of desire to show your writing to anyone. You cannot improve if you don't get feedback on your writing, which means you have to show it to somebody. But you have the scribbling self-doubt about whether your writing is good enough. And, he, and here's the answer to that. And here's the, the worst part of that. Your writing is not good enough for other people. And it's not that it's not good enough for everybody. It's this is subjective. Mm -hmm. So even me, there are still people out there that do not like how I write, do not like what I write, do not like my storytelling abilities. And I will never, no one will ever hit hundred percent. You can't. And so it's one of the reasons why I don't read my reviews. I don't. I look at my rating, you know, am I running a high four star? And then I'm fine. Because the problem is, like everyone else, I'll read a hundred reviews that go, oh my God, this is amazing. Oh my God, this is great. Oh my God, this is the best. Oh my God. And then I'll hit that one review that goes, meh, I've read better. And I go, you know what? This guy, this is the only guy that knows what he's talking about. Those other hundred people are idiots. This guy knows that I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. I'm a loser. And then, I, and then I'm just crushed because that's all that matters is that one guy or girl that didn't like me. And it's not going to do me any good. If I'm pleasing, you know, 4.8, 4.9 out of five people, then I'm done. I'm done. That's, that's as best as you can possibly get in this industry. Mm -hmm. But still, even me, I struggle with those self-doubts. And I'm, you know, when I do take something that I just first wrote to my alpha readers who are all, you know, fantastic writers in their own right. You know, I have a very inner core of writers. I'm still terrified. I'm still this is the time that they figure out that I'm a fraud. This is the time. This is the one that breaks me. It's never, it never goes away, or at least it never has for me. My advice on dealing with self-doubt is the same as it is with pretty much everything. 
whether it's self-doubt in computer science or self-doubt in writing, self-doubt in your career. Relationships, world, it doesn't matter. Relationships, world, etc. And it's this. Remember, you will die. <laughs> That's even more bleak than my answer. I understand how bleak that sounds, but to me, it's not bleak. To me, it's a comforting thought. The absolute worst thing that can happen to you in life is that you are unalive. That's it. And then it's all done. It's all over. The race is done and no one cares. Well, you just reminded me of something that I said for decades, and I haven't said it in decades. Uh, But when I was younger, I used to say all the time, in 100 years, who will care? Exactly. And it basically, I was saying the same thing. You're not going to be here in a hundred years and nobody's going to remember it anyway. So who cares? I don't know. If, if, you're, if you're out there and this sounds bleak to you, bear this in mind. I don't find it bleak. I find it comforting. To me, it's the expression of it doesn't really matter. You think it matters because you have this internal monologue where it matters. I read this when I put up my first YouTube video because that's also nerve wracking. You're like, oh, oh. People are going to watch it. People are going to see things. People are going to react to things. And you have this moment of panic. And I haven't had a moment of panic in decades. I'm a a fairly confident person. But that was really, that was a moment of panic. And then I read this thing where another YouTuber, a big successful YouTuber said, just put it up. No one cares. No one's going to see your first video. No one cares. And I was like, oh, right. Remember, you will die. And I was like, it's okay. <laughs> well, for me, it's just just remembering that it's subjective. We were talking before we started recording about my favorite all-time fantasy saga, bar none, head and shoulders above everything else. And that's Joel Rosenberg's Guarding the Flame saga. Yeah. Not a successful you know, saga as far as readership and as far mm. as accolades and as far as wealth that was, should have been created by Joel, you know, he never found great. He made a good living. Mm. You know, he didn't suffer or anything like that. But he looked at these other people that were one tenth or one one hundredth or one one thousandth the writer he was, mm. and he had to swallow the fact that they were making you know thousand times more money than him, even though he was a thousand times better writer than them. And so I always felt really sorry for Joel. Because of the fact that he was way ahead of his time. If you have not read the Guardians of the Flame series and you are an epic fantasy fan, I cannot recommend a series higher. Probably my biggest influencer on on why I write the way I write and how I teach the way I teach, where it's all about the reader. It's all about the emotion. It's all about holding that point of view. It's all about being limited and and not slipping into a crappy, omniscient, telly narrator. Just everything I push this man was doing in the seventies and the eighties when everyone else was writing garbage, you know, to me again, massively successful books, but I always struggled with them because I'm like, this is so telly and I don't care. And like, and then I found Rosenberg and it's like, Oh my goodness, this guy writes like butter. It's just smooth and beautiful and, and so gripping. And so, yeah, probably my biggest influence on my writing career. And yet most people don't even know the name. They don't know him. And and that is a tragedy, in my opinion. I know Joel Rosenberg because I found his books in a library. 
I think I found them in a school library, actually. <laughs> I found them back in the day. Uh, there was a company that did, it was a book club, just like the record clubs and the CD clubs and the tape clubs and all of those. And I joined it because it was like, hey, pick 12 novels for a penny. And then, you know, Nuts. pay 50 <laughs> bucks for every novel after that. Um, or we'll sue you. Uh, so I, you know, because I'm a, you know, was a big reader and all that. And this is in my, oh God, I was out of the Marine course, but it's still early twenties mm. when I actually had a penny that I could spend on this club. So they printed up their own versions. So it wasn't production versions. They did these really cheap, crappy bindings, really small texts mm. because they would bundle two or three, sometimes four novels in one book. So like that, that's the only version of the Guardians of Flame I own is the crappy book club version that has the first three novels stuffed, shoved into one book. And I've read it so many times, the spine is ripped off. And like, it's just, it's, I've lost the dust jacket. But yeah, Guardians of the Flame never found the readership that it should have, in my opinion. And he struggled with that. He was always bitter. It's tough. It is, it is hard. It is hard to get over self-doubt. It is hard when you think that what you're doing is good enough and the market is not accepting it. Well, a lot of this is luck. A lot of this is out of your control. And if you let it impact you, if you let it stop you writing, you're just going to, you, your journey as a writer will stop. They won't care. Bear that in mind. Nothing's going to change in their perspective. Only you are going to change. So you need to face this trial of troubles where you've got this self-doubt and where you're perhaps not achieving success and you've just got to keep going or not. But if not, yeah. then bear in mind, you're exiting the writer's journey. As I say, I'm not Nostradamus, but I have made one, I've made one prophecy that, is, that has come true every time. And I'm not a, I'm not a soothsayer, but this one, this one work, this one is, I always say a hundred percent of writers who quit writing never become successful writers. hundred yeah. percent. The, the reason kind of this, this topic came up, I mean, it was on our list, but the reason why we started talking and wanted to talk about it today was something that happened to me this week. So as I've said, you know, I am open for private consulting. If it's something you're interested in, mm -hmm. I can help you become a better writer. I always say I'm not a cheerleader, but the funny thing is with my private consultants and my writers groups and my friends and, and all of that, I, I do end up being more of a cheerleader than I ever imagined I would be. So everyone comes to me and they're like, I'm hiring you, but really it's just for you to tell me how awesome I am. Mm -hmm. And then I don't. And I also don't do, and I explain this to them. I don't do the, the sandwich process where you're supposed to say something nice and then say something that needs work and then say something nice. You're supposed to do that. <laughs> you're supposed to sandwich. You're supposed to you know start with something good, then go to the topic and then end with something good. Who made that rule? I'm sure some millennial. No, it's been around before. Millennials. I'm just picking on millennials. I don't do that because you're paying me and I've only got this much time with you. Do you want me to, you know, blow smoke up your butt and pay me for that. That's not the type of person I am. I feel like since you're paying me hard-earned money to get hard-earned information that I should give you that. So I literally focus in. I try. Like if you do something that really last night, I did it twice to two different 
writers in my writer's room where I was like, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. This line was fantastic. Really, really good. You suck, you suck. You suck. <laughs> and so if something's good, it's good. And it's yeah, cool if that. you if you actually do impress me with something, I will let you know. But you have to, it has to be above and beyond because mm. if it's just good. I just won't comment on it. Mm. it's just, you know, if I don't comment on it, then you're fine. Mm. It's not a, a, an outstanding thing. You don't get a gold star, but yeah. it's good enough. So I just focus in on, you know, you messed up this, you broke mm. this, you did this wrong. You could have improved this. This is why mm. this is bad. You know, I'm, because I want, I want you to, to suck that knowledge out of me so that you become a better writer. Yeah. And I don't want to waste time with trying to not hurt your feelings. Not that I'm a jerk. You yeah. know, I know I just said, you suck, you suck, you suck. I don't ever, <laughs> it's always about the writing. You know, it's yeah. always about, okay, this line is broken because of this. And yeah. had you thought about it different, done it different, worked it different, whatever, look at how much better it would have impacted the audience. I never say you wrote this line horribly. No, like, of course. It's not about you. It's about the work. No. I still kind of have this arc that I have to go through. Mm. So since almost everybody comes to me knowing that they're awesome, and then I point out all of this stuff, there's always the next stage that I have to get this person through, or they're going to quit writing. I've got a newish private consultant client, mm. and I've been working with her. We've only had, I can't, we, we might've only had one session now that I'm thinking about it, but I no, we've only had one session. I actually now remember, I thought we had two. Mm. So usually it's after the second session that I, I will have to get deal with this part of it. Mm. But last night during group, she actually texted me. I need you to know I've been working on the same two paragraphs for weeks now. I have lost all confidence in my ability to tell this story. And this is not unique. Like I get these emails or texts or phone conversations always after the mm. second or third kind of meeting when the reality sits in of how much they don't know. That's what the the people start with they're ignorant of their ignorance mm. and ignorance is bliss mm -hmm. if you don't know that you've done all this stuff wrong then you haven't done anything wrong literally you're doing everything right <laughs> and so having someone like me come in and roll over that ignorance and literally expose it to you I get it. I know it hurts. And so I always have to. And so there's a text conversation that while I was in writer's group, mm -hmm. I'm also kind of being this cheerleader where I'm talking about, look, first of all, don't fear making mistakes. Don't because she's trying and, and I have to get people over this. They, they now go, oh, well, I don't want that negative feedback from Drake. So let me work on it and work on it and work on it and work on it, work on it, work on it until I finally fix it myself and then send it to him so he can tell me how awesome I am. That doesn't make you a better writer. You need to make mistakes. You need to have, you know, people going, this is what you did wrong. And I'll tell you something from a software perspective, because I've spoken previously about how, how yeah. much these two things are the same. Your writing will not improve by you sitting alone, worrying over your writing. I promise you it won't. You will remain the same writer as you are right now without change. You have to show your writing to other people and listen to their words. Otherwise, you will not grow. You, your writing will not change. It will not improve. Nothing will change. And actually, that brings us to the writer's tribulations part two. So many writers 
can't get over the I'm good and I don't want to listen to you. Like I say this all the time. I always say, look, one of the worst things about being in a writer's group is that there's always one person who doesn't listen. They bring their stuff for critique. You critique it and you go, this is what's wrong with it. And they go, yeah, well, you're wrong. And you wonder why, why are you even coming here week after week after week? Because you literally don't listen to any of us. You don't rewrite anything. You don't change anything. You, you know, whatever. And I always say, if your writer's group doesn't have a person like that, then it may be you. <laughs> so I'm just saying every writer's group has it. The, the, the other side of the coin is you also can't grow if you're not critiquing other people. Yes. You must critique other people to grow and you must be critiqued to grow. I, I don't look like it now because it's been many, many years, but I used to fence at a very, very competitive level, uh, sword fencing. Yeah. I didn't think you were you know, laying fences in a farm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that isn't that, a competitive sport. I'm pretty sure. It's not a competitive sport, but I did do that too, because I grew up on a farm. So, <laughs> so I, was, I was fencing at a very competitive level. And one of the things our coach made us do was he made us coach juniors because you reach a point where you learn more by teaching others than you would learn any other way. I actually just got in this conversation at this convention that I was at this last week, this writer's convention, teaching writing. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked me, they're like, okay, I've been, I've been, I've read your books. I've, I've you know, listened to your podcast. I've, I've gone to lots of your classes it's just amazing that because most of my stuff is unique. Most of how I teach writing, no one else teaches the way I teach it. Everybody's locked in this academic way of teaching, which is hard to understand and, and not practical. You know, I, I, I talked about uh, Cohen's book, uh, The Story Grid, and it is a book that I recommend because there's some really brilliant stuff in that. And Cohen is a brilliant man and he worked in Hollywood and he was an editor and he was a, a script doctor where he would show them their holes. But I always have to put a warning on that because 20, 30 percent of that book doesn't work. You can tell that the man has never actually produced a story from scratch because 20, 30% of the stuff that he recommends that you do can't happen. You, it's not practical. You won't actually succeed with it. He's brilliant at taking someone else's work and fixing it. I'm not, I mean, that's, he made tons of money off of that. You can tell, or at least I can tell from reading the story grid that he's never done it from scratch himself. And he also has said that like on his podcast and stuff like that, uh, that he is an editor. So there's some brilliant stuff. I highly recommend this book. Don't take anything that I'm saying wrong. Mm. You just have to read it with a grain of salt going, okay, but what of this mm. isn't practical? What of this isn't going to work in reality when, when, the, when the rubber meets the road? And I think the, the, biggest, the two biggest reasons why people gravitate to my training is one, it's very practical. I mm. teach what really works for me and has worked for me for decades. Mm. And two, I never went through academia. Mm. You know, I, I never went to college for this. I never, I didn't even go to high school for this. My highest level of English is, is remedial ninth grade English. Mm. That's it. I've never taken an English class past remedial ninth grade English. So all of this has been a self journey. All of this has been me listening and open and digging and discussing. So yes, at this convention, somebody said, it's amazing that you've kind of made all this stuff up and you just had this. And I, and I said, actually, no, 
before the reason why I am the writer that I am today is because I decided to move into teaching this stuff. I was a good storyteller before this 15 year journey of teaching. I was, but it was all more instinct. It was all more, I I didn't think about, Ooh, is this the right way to do it? I just kind of did it and people seemed to like it, but I didn't really understand why. And so when I started having to go, okay, I write active voice and not passive voice. Why? Why does that work so much better? And it really forced me to sit down and articulate the the reasons behind these gut feelings of mine. And it showed me some weaknesses in my gut feelings, some holes in my gut feelings. It showed me some, some things that I could absolutely push to a new level and I have literally become a better writer, especially in the last 10 years than I have ever been in my life. So there are, there are three huge benefits to critiquing people or teaching people. Either one of the two works, depending on, on what skill you're trying to learn. The first huge benefit is that it's somebody else's work. So you're not emotionally attached to it. So you can be a lot harsher with somebody else's work than you will be with your own work because it's your precious little baby child. (laughs) The second thing is that it forces you to think about the structure. Instead of making a decision based on instinct, instead of making a decision based on, but this just feels better, you have to think about why it feels better. And you have to communicate that in a way that somebody else can understand. Not just in a way that makes sense in your head, it needs to make sense in their head. And the third reason, the third big benefit of critiquing somebody else's work, teaching somebody else, is that you get exposed to better things. Because sometimes you'll be critiquing somebody's work and what they've done will be inspirational. And you will stop because you're in a critiquing mode, you will stop and think, why did this work better? And then you will learn. So adding to that, when I'm reading some unpublished work or some self-published work that just is horrid and I'm talking to the writer, I'm going to get arrested one day because like, I really want to slap people. This is the only time I'm a pacifist. This is the only time I really want to hurt somebody physically is when I say, like, what do you read? Who are your influences? And they go, oh, I don't read. I hate reading. Oh my God, I want to slap them so hard. I get, it makes me so fear. Like, why are you writing novels if you hate reading novels? I hate you and I want you to die. Like just burst into flames <laughs> about 10 feet from me. Cause I don't want to, I want to actually feel the heat, just burst into flames and just die. And I'm a pacifist. I don't, I don't wish ill on anybody, but I really hate it when somebody tells me that because their big thing is their reason. They always have a reason. It's always the same reason. Every one of them. I don't want to be influenced. And I'm like, I, so I've read your stuff. Dear God, you need to be influenced. You need to be influenced. The reason why I consume so many comic books, video games, TV, movies, I can watch something that doesn't, that's broken, that doesn't work. And I go, oh, here's, here's, well, man, if they had just, if they had just tweaked this, changed that, thought about it for a second, that would have been so great. Or I can see something that's amazing. That's why a lot of people don't like watching things with me because if, if, a, if a beautiful dialogue exchange happens, I'm like, hold on a second. I don't want to watch that again. 
I rewind it and I'll watch the dialogue exchange. I'm like, oh my God, do you see, do you see what they're doing with it? Let's watch that again. Like I watch it three, four, five. And they're like, my wife is like, can we just watch the movie? I don't care about the, <laughs> so if it's good, mm. you know, I want to do it. So that's adding to that. If you're not consuming fantasy content and you want to be a fantasy writer, there's a guy who claimed to be that. And most of us don't like him very much. So if you want to turn into Terry Goodkind, go for it. <laughs> you dropped the name. I don't like that guy. I'm sorry. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've only read the first. I finished it. Mm. I, I The book that I had had like the first opening chapter of book two, and I read it, and I was like, yep, nope, I'm good. The, the reason why I really, I like, I don't like his books, but I could have gotten over that because there's lots of fantasy writers whose books I don't like, and I don't slam them, right? I just, I don't like their write, writing style. I don't like Terry Goodkind. Because he stared into a camera and went, oh, I don't write fantasy and I don't read fantasy. I write about the human condition. Like, listen, boy, what do you think all of the other authors do? Right. That's literally, you just described storytelling. Yeah, I was. Anyway, moving on to your fourth point. For the, first, for the fourth point, that, you, that the advantage you get when you're critiquing other people. But I figured out decades ago that when you're writing a book, you're actually writing two versions of that book at the same exact time mm. and you don't realize it, but you are. Every single writer is writing two books at the same time. You're writing one on paper, but at the same time, you're writing that same exact book in your head mm. and you seamlessly join the two together. You cannot tell that they're not one book. So when you read a scene you're actually pulling information from your brain and from the paper. And to you, it absolutely is perfect. When you give that paper book away, you can't give the book away in your head. And so when other people are reading it, they only get the paper book. Yeah. Which means when you're reading someone else's paper book, you're not getting the book in their head. So you get to see what's put on paper. And so I always say this, there's, there's several rules that I have that are unique to my writer's group. Like one of the rules that a lot of writer's groups have is, is called a gag order. The, the critique E, the one who's being critiqued is never allowed to talk. And I'm like, I'm a freaking adult. I can talk when I want to talk. What do you mean? I can't talk. That's stupid. However, I do understand the reason for it. And again, it's for me, it's always about the why. Why would we create that rule? Well, there are two things that critique ease do that they shouldn't. And so I don't have a gag order in my writer's group, but all of my attendees know you will not do these two things because I will slap you for it verbally, not physically. But I, 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 no, no. So you can never argue because that's stupid because most critiquing is how the, your writing made them feel. So basically what you're saying is I go, well, I read this and it makes me feel this way. And you go, no, it didn't. Dude, it made me feel that way. Like the right. end. <laughs> it's, you can't argue that because I'm literally, because everything about storytelling is about what you make the reader feel. Mm. And so if you argue with somebody, if they're like, well, I didn't like this character because I don't understand this. And they're like, how could you not understand that? It's all, you know, he's so amazing. And he, look, you're writing passes on a character that is not likable and is very confusing. I don't care what you think, because again, that's that two book thing. Mm. The second thing that they're not allowed to do is they're not allowed to explain. 
like, I didn't understand this section. Well, you see what it is, is blah. I'm like, why would you do that? If you have to explain it, that means that it's not on the paper book. It's in your head book. So unless you plan on traveling the world and explaining that individually to everyone who buys your book, you have failed. So on both of those cases, whether you're going to argue or whether you're going to explain, when somebody says, this is how it made me feel, and it's not what you thought they should feel, shut your mouth and make a note. I screwed up. I need to change this to make them feel what I want to feel. And the second is, if they say, I don't understand this, shut your mouth and make the note. I screwed up and didn't explain this well enough. I will put one caveat because uh, I'm I'm in the process of beta reading my second book or having my second book beta read, and I'm in communication with my beta readers. When they when they say to me, like one of them said to me today, "What do you mean when you say herself's Elamar mantled around her? What does that verbiage mean?" And I'm like, "Well, this is what I had in my head. Really, I'm telling them so that they can continue with the book and still have the experience of the book, and I'm making a note." that I need to fix the description, the initial description of mantling. Sometimes you can explain also in order to get feedback. Like, actually, I meant to, I meant to say this. How would I, what did I miss? Right. You know? But that's not explaining. Yeah. That's actually going, okay, you got this. I was thinking I was giving you this. So let's discuss how to yeah. fix that problem. You're not explaining. Explaining no. is just, oh, it's because of this. There and then is. that's it. They just, yeah. they, they assume that that's the, the end of the yeah. discussion and they don't have to change anything in the writing. So that's what I mean about explaining. Absolutely. If you're going to get feedback to, to fix this problem mm. and you don't see an, a solution, we did mm. that literally happened last night. Mm. Um, one girl read and I was like, this is what I got of it. And the whole table was like, yeah, that's exactly what I got of it. And she was like, well, crap. So this is what I meant. This is what I was trying to accomplish. And then we as a group discuss, okay, well, if, if I was doing that, I might add this or I might do this. Or actually the funny thing is, is that one ended quickly because she said, what I was trying to convey was this. Mm. And we all went, well, then write that right there. <laughs> Literally what you just said, write that because that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so the answer was there and we didn't really discuss it because she had the answer already. She just had it in her head book and not yeah. in the paper book. So again, that goes back to, the, we're tying all this into the second part of this, which is being open to listen to critique. You have to listen. And I, and I do have a caveat. So for me, when I'm getting feedback, I have kind of learned that it falls in a 10-80-10 split. There's a percentage, and this even happens with people that don't even write. There are occasions where this has happened, where I go, that's better than anything I can come up with, copy, paste. Literally, <laughs> I'm just using their, exam, their, their sample or their, their fix. It, it's so perfect. It's so beautiful. It's actually in my voice. Like, I'm just like, yep, yep, fine. And, you know, just copy, replace, I'm done. Yeah. It's, it's over. But it, it only happens a few times. The other extreme, which only happens a few times, is where I go, nope, you're wrong. I, I hear you. I disagree. Right. It is important to get critiqued. Yes, it's important to critique. It's important to understand what you're critiquing, and it's important to understand how to take critique. So two last stories, and then we need to kind of wrap this up. Yeah. In my classes and in my books, I'm constantly talking about don't you dare shift POVs. Don't you dare head hopping. Mm. There is no point of view that allows for it. It weakens the story. It's crappy. It's horrible. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. 
And in my anatomy of a fight scene class, I actually am reading. It's the only class that I read my work in. Mm. I usually use everybody else's, but this we're actually reading. And the reason why I do it is because I know why I chose to do what I did. Mm. And so as I'm, as I'm laying out these, these kind of ways to think about writing a fight scene, I can, I can use my writing. We're reading it. So you don't have to come to it having already read something of mine because we're going to read it together and then we're going to dissect it. And I'm going to explain, I'm going to show you and, and so on and so forth. But there's this one moment where I stop and I throw, I, I read a page and we talk about it. And then I, the next slide is actually just one paragraph of that page. And I said, on a side note, this has nothing to do with, uh, with fighting scenes, but on a side note, if you guys have been coming to my classes, reading my books, whatever, you know, I talk about head or I talk about several things that are pet peeves of mine, but there's one, there's one big thing that I absolutely hate. I call it a golden rule. I say, you can never, ever, ever break it. And in this paragraph, I break that golden rule. And I don't tell them what the golden rule is, but I'm like, read this paragraph and somebody tell me what I did wrong. And they'll throw out like, oh, you did this wrong. I'm like, nope. Oh, you did that wrong. Nope. And you know, I'm, I'm on time, so I can't take forever. So finally I go, see this line right here. I actually POV shift. I head hop and everybody goes, oh, wow. I didn't even see that. I'm like, right. Because it's, it's cool. It's awesome. It's a, so I shifted this, the main character chops this guy's arms off both of them. And so I shift in, in the next sentence in the same paragraph, I shift to that guy's head. Cause I say he reached to grab without, before he realized that his arms had been severed from his body. So in that line, I'm actually in that guy's head, yeah. but because it's all a part of one paragraph and because the action's going so fast, no one hits that line and go, oh my God, look at this guy. He can't even hold his POV. I'm out. I will never read this guy again. You don't even notice it. And it's because I know the rules so well. I know the underlying structure so well. I break it when I need to and when I want to, because I'm going to do something really cool like that. I mean, it's cool that the guy didn't even realize his arms were gone and he tries to grab somebody. Like that's a really kind of cool, twisted, messed up kind of kind of thought because then he, his head gets chopped off. You got to understand structure and, and, mm. and story structure and theme and all this stuff, but then you don't think about it. It all becomes, you know, once you learn it to the level that you need it, you no longer have to think about it. It just becomes this way of doing it. Uh, and then the last thing, you reminded me of a story. This one guy came up to me at a convention. He was an author there, self-published. He had his thing. And he's like, man, I really respect you and, and love what you do. Would you be willing to read just, just the opening chapter of my first novel? And I'm like, you know what? Put it here. If I got time between whatever, uh, you know, I'll read it. And so I read it. I, you know, I ended up getting the time. And when he came up to me, he goes, what do you think? And I said, so first of all, this is the most grammatically perfect thing I've ever read. Literally, it is flawless grammar. And he said, I know I've got a PhD in English. I didn't even know you could get a PhD in English. I didn't know that was possible. I thought master's was it. And, and he's like, he's like, I know grammar better than any human being on this planet. And I was like, it is, it is obvious. It is, it really shows. And he, and he was all happy. And I said, but I don't care about any of it. I don't care about the characters, the plight. I don't It's written so perfectly and so pristinely. It's like this surgical room that is sterile and there's no emotion. There's no fluidity to it. There's no poeticness to it. And he goes, you know what? 
that's I, I've only sold like five copies total of, of all seven books that I've written. And, and every one of my reviews says that, but I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. That's why I've written seven books like this, because grammar is everything. And I'm like, then why are you here trying to sell books? Like if nobody likes this, if everyone hates it, but you love it, then just write it. You, I mean, you must pay attention to grammar, but. 100% grammar is your tool. You must understand every rule, every ins and outs. The, the only reason why you want to know it at that level is so that you can break it, bend yeah. it, twist it as you need to, to make it interesting and enjoying. Yeah. It's a tool. It is not a religion. Yeah. And to him, it's a religion. It's a, exactly. He's a fanatic. You're not married to grammar. <laughs> to wrap up our, our trial of our writer's trial of troubles, when you have doubts, push through them. You have to. We all have them. All of us have them. Maybe you take, you know, Drake's more cheerleading approach <laughs> where you, you know, just push through. Maybe you like my bleak approach of remember, you will die. <laughs> but whatever you need to do to push through your self-doubt, push through it. Here's the problem with self-doubt and with not taking advice, everything we've talked about here. The hardest part about writing, the only time you get it right is when you've, you've made yourself so exposed and vulnerable that it hurts. And so that we get that when we're writing, we're, we're literally pouring our soul onto the page. And so when you come to someone like me or a writer's group or whatever, and they go, they say something innocuous, like, Hey, so in this paragraph, you author intruded and you, you don't use author intrusion as a device to tell this story because you can, if, if the whole story is set up for author intrusion, you know, we've seen the voiceover shows like Doogie Howser broke yeah. in, um, how I met your mother had some voiceover stuff, stuff like that. So if, if, if author intrusion is your gimmick, then it's all the way through. But, but in this paragraph, you're not using it as a gimmick. And so you author intrude in this paragraph and it weakens the entire scene because Author intrusion, if it is not the method of telling stories, it's bad. Mm. And so all that makes perfectly logical sense. Unfortunately, what you hear is, hey, see this part of your soul? This part of your soul sucks. It's horrible. It's not what I said. Yeah. But that's what you hear. And I get that. So really, how you really get over this stuff is you get over the fact that you aren't perfect, that you aren't going to be amazing every time. I get edited. I think I'm a phenomenal writer. You know, I've had at least one person, actually way more, but at least one person tell me that I'm the best writer they've ever read. Now, I may be the only writer they've ever read, but I've gotten those compliments. I should have this huge ego and this huge, I'm the cat's meow and no one can tell me what to do. I'm constantly, I know this isn't all that good, but tell me what you think. By the way, everybody should go to Starving Writer Studio and sign up for the email list. It'll make mm -hmm. my marketing team happy. Starving Writer Studio, it's launching soon. Go there, sign up. You can keep up with my fantasy, mm -hmm. my animation, and my teaching. We're, we're, it's all going to be there. But he was like, hey, what, what tagline do you want for this? Because your Drake U has creating better stories one writer at a time. And I love that tagline. And, you know, my... My writing has my Latin creed, which is Andronibus Ambulo Imaginationis, which is Latin for walking the halls of imagination. So I always have, I really do. And he's like, what do you want for this? And I went, always hungry. And so that's the tagline for Starting Writer Studio. And that's the way I feel. I'm always hungry for better 
knowledge, more knowledge. I, how do I push myself? How can I tweak this? And when you can open yourself up and understand that your writing is not an extension of your self-worth, it is a product for consumption. Because to me, it's like you're working on a car and you're trying to get this thing off and you've got this tool and you're, it keeps slipping and you keep busting your knuckles and you're all bloodied and beaten. And I walk up and go, oh yeah, you're never going to remove it with that tool. You actually need this tool and you can take it right off. Like, would you go, nah, screw that. I'm going to keep using this thing where I've got all my bloody knockoffs. Like, no, you would go, oh God, I didn't know that. Let me have that tool. Oh, look at that. It came right off. Like, that's really what it is. These are all just tools and processes and things to learn. Don't be a pighead and go, nope, I'm going to keep doing it and busting my knuckles because that's the way I want to do it. Like, that's dumb. Don't do that. So if you can get over that, what, what it really does, even though that self-doubt is always going to be there, you're always going to have that nagging little, you're not good enough. You're a poser. You're a fraud. You're an imposter. Who do you, like every time I do these podcasts, I feel this way. Like literally in the back of my head, as I'm talking, that little eight-year-old girl is going, why do you think you're good enough to actually tell people how to do this stuff? You're an idiot. You didn't even go to college. You have no education whatsoever. Like, what are you even doing this for? Constantly, she's there. I hate her. The more I've opened myself up to know that my self-worth isn't, because you can disagree with me. I don't care. I mean, I'm always right. So if you disagree with me, you're going to have to reconcile that. But, but you can disagree with me. I'm perfectly, it doesn't offend me if you're like, I disagree with what you just said. Because, you know, that's, it's, it's subjective. This is what we do. And so you just, the more you start realizing that what you do, and even my teaching is just a product for consumption. Some people really dig it. Other people are just like, nah, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't mean I'm wrong and it doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean they're wrong and it doesn't mean I'm right. It works for some. It doesn't work for others. Stories work for some. It doesn't work for others. And so that doubt is always going to be there. But the more you start realizing that it's not your self-worth, it's not an extension of your ego. It, it literally is just this thing that you're trying to sell and, and that's it. The easier the self-doubt is to get over to push through that little girl's voice in my head is, is much quieter than it used to be 20 years ago. It's still there, but now it's like, she's just, no, she's just whispering in there again. so, you know, every once in a while she'll, she'll get a little louder, but for the most part, she's just back there and she's still ranting, but I can't really hear her that much. Uh, I think I've said this in this, in this podcast before, there was this one college professor that I really adore with her class. She makes them at the beginning for a month, stand up and hold something they wrote and go, this is my writing. This is me. When someone critiques my writing, they're not critiquing me. This is my writing. This is me. When someone critiques my writing, they're not critiquing me. And I love that. None of this stuff is going to go away. You're going to have to push through it. You will only grow through crit criticism and critiquing others. Mm -hmm. That is the only way to grow. <laughs> you cannot sit on your writing and breed it better. Nope. <laughs> It is not an egg. It will not hatch by itself. That's how you get over that self-doubt. You make yourself vulnerable. You realize that you're still alive after the writer's group meeting. You, you might cry a little bit. You might you know, think how horrible you are and why are you doing this and whatever. And then you get over that and you're like, no, doggone it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it again. And the next time you get less criticism or, or different criticism or whatever. And on that note, keep writing. Hi guys, this is Marie from Releasing Your Inner Dragon, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you're interested in more content on fantasy world building, head over to YouTube and look up Just In Time Worlds. 
I release tons of content there. If you'd like to check out my book, The Hidden Blade by Marie M. Mullaney, it is available as an ebook, audiobook, and print book on Amazon. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Hey guys, Drake here. Thank you so much for listening to Releasing Your Inner Dragon podcast. I hope you're getting a ton of information and maybe even some nuggets of gold that you can take into your own writing to help you on your journey of story creation. A couple things I want to throw at you. First of all, for the first time in years, I am opening myself up to being a private mentor again. If you would like for me to work with you to improve your writing right now, reach out to me. You can either go to my website, maxwellalexanderdrake.com, and send me a contact form, or just email me at author at maxadrake.com. Also, as many of you may know, I've been out of the novel game for quite a few years. I was the lead fiction writer for EverQuest Next from Sony. I've been in the movie and TV industry for a few years now, but I am excited to say I'm back into the novel game. I've actually been working on a novel for a little while now, and I'm going to start dropping it on Amazon's Vela. So if you're on that platform, look me up, Maxwell Alexander Drake. Thank you again for listening, and as always, keep writing.